You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. Jesus' better sacrifice. Jesus received the sentence that we deserve to pay. He removes our sins. He represents us in the very throne room of heaven. Listen today as Pastor Josh walks us through the truth from Hebrews chapter 9. If you want to jump into your Bibles or your Bible app to Hebrews 9. Uh, Last time we had looked through verses 1 through 14, and then today we're going to be looking at verses uh, 15 through 28, so we're going to finish out Hebrews chapter 9. You know, what's, what's been so good about this morning is these reminders of these things of how we are to function as the church. So through some of the things that we have sung, remind us of how we are to function as the church. It also has provided reminders of how we are to view God. Uh, so even the opportunities that have been shared with us of how we can be the hands and feet, right? Of how we can be the church, how we can be light in a world of darkness. But none of that can be answered if we haven't already answered kind of the, well, why? Why do we do that? What is our motivation behind that? Um, I won't ask for a raise of hands, but how, how many of you, when you think about the church and the things talked about in the church, sometimes it sounds so strange. Like, have you ever it paused and thought for a moment, you know, they talk about blood an awful lot at church. And they talk about death an awful lot at church. They talk about suffering. They talk about, right, all these things that we kind of talk about, and then we're saying, and God's worthy of what Jesus walked through and worthy of the blood. All these different things that we sing, these different elements that we, we, we know about, and if we've been around Christianity for some time, sometimes we don't pause and think, man, how foreign of a subject matter this is for everyone else. Without God's spirit working in us, we can't see God's word as anything but ridiculous. But praise the Lord for his work in our hearts to see what he is communicating through his word. The, uh, the author of Hebrews is kind of working with this people group, right, who, who would have grown up in all the rituals, all the customs. We spent some time last week talking about all the ins and outs of some of the tabernacle and all the sacrifices would, that would have taken place and all these things. So imagine with me, you've grown up generation after generation, and this has been the expectation upon you, that, that you do these rituals. And if you don't participate well in the Day of Atonement, well, then your sins may not be forgiven, So you're going through all these rituals, knowing the importance of them, knowing that if I want my sins forgiven, I need to go through all these sacrifices. I need to participate in this. And now Jesus comes onto the scene. You have the author of Hebrews saying, listen, what has happened, right? Chapter eight basically said, hey, there was this old covenant, this law that you followed, and now it's obsolete because a new covenant has come through Jesus. So you no longer need to follow that old covenant. So the thing that you have done for generations, you don't need to do anymore. It doesn't work. And instead, you need to put your focus and faith on Jesus. And so then what, what, the, what the author of Hebrews does really well, he then begins to break it down for us. And especially for the people, he's breaking it down. He said, okay, there was an old covenant, now there's a new covenant that you're gonna follow. But he begins to explain, hey, those, remember those traditions that you had, the time in the sanctuary, the tabernacle, all those practices? Here's why Jesus is better. 
So last week we spent that time looking at what was the purpose of the tabernacle and we alluded to the fact that, that the temple helps us see that the holiness of God has not changed. Our access to God is still limited because of our sin unless something mediates for us, unless something builds a bridge for us. We're unable in our own efforts to build that bridge, to, to, to go over that, that chasm that's there. And so Jesus enters the scene, he says that he is better than the high priest who would walk in on the day of atonement. He has for once and for all been the final sacrifice. And so that was, that was the first 14 verses for us and now he even, he takes a step back again and he says okay, and then why is Jesus' sacrifice specifically better than any of the sacrifices that have taken place during the time of the tabernacle, during the time of the old covenant. Why is Jesus better than all those things? And so this morning we're gonna really focus on Jesus' better sacrifice. And so we see this last week, this tabernacle sanctuary, and this week we're really looking at kind of what would be seen as, what would have seen at the pinnacle during the old covenant is the day of atonement. So I want to paint a little bit of picture. Last week we had to deal with something that we're just not used to. How, what does the tabernacle look like? We have no real rituals that we look like. And then this week we're looking at blood. And I, I talked this week, how do you describe something like the blood sacrifices that occurred and the importance of it without making people pass out, okay? So that's my task uh, before me, but I, I, I think we'll get through it together. But it is important that we see this emphasis on blood, and we're gonna unpack it a little bit uh, this morning. But I want us to understand, it's hard for us to understand what the Day of Atonement would have been like, and the blood especially, what it was representing. Like they, the, the nation of Israel during this time would have had a very clear picture of what it looked like on the Day of Atonement for sacrifices to be made, blood to be spilt to cover their sins. And yet for us, we just, it's hard for us to grasp that. Now, some of us have been, I, I, I grew up and we, we raised chickens, chickens for a while. So all our family would get together and we had all these chickens and then like on a weekend we would get together and we would, we would butcher chickens all together and, and go through that whole process, all right? And some of you, I know you have chickens. How many, and many of you have probably maybe seen or been part of that process with chickens or other animals. Some of us are like, more like my wife where you're like, I don't wanna see the process, I just wanna, to be neatly packaged in wrapping for me, ready to go, okay? And even that's hard, like touching raw meat. No thank you, right? Uh, but some of us have seen that process. One of the images that's absolutely just burned into my brain is my, we, we would use a hatchet and decapitate all the chickens, all right? If this is too much for you, just plug your ears for like 45 seconds. Uh, and, and so we use a hatchet, we'd put the chicken out, cut its head off, let it do its flopping thing, and then take care of the rest, right? My grandfather would, would typically take the hatchet and he would, he would deal with that, that part, except it seemed that he missed or just barely hit sometimes. And so you get like this chicken who like half its head was just kind of flopping there, right? And he felt bad enough to like finish the process and he'd just grab the head and rip it, you know, the rest of the way off. 
And so in my mind, I still see my grandfather. When I, when I see him, I'm like, all I can see is grandpa like pulling the heads off chickens. He's covered in chicken blood. It was just a you know, murderous scene that has just been burned into my mind. Uh, so some of us have maybe been around that process and we understand, man, the, the messiness of that, the stench of that. So imagine year after year with the nation of Israel, they're coming to this day of atonement and they're making all these sacrifices. You have all these various animals being sacrificed and the blood that's being spilt, that's being put on them, that's being put on altars, that's being collected in pails. There was so much blood on the day of atonement because so many sacrifices were being made on that day that they literally made a, a, a gutter system to carry the majority of that blood away from the area where they were doing all the sacrifices. For us to understand what was happening on that day every single year is just like mind-boggling. But for them, they understood they were seeing the animals being slaughtered. They were seeing the blood that was being spilled. They had the stench of that blood that was being spilt out. Why? Right? We have to ask the question, why? What was the purpose of all of this? What was the purpose of that stench of death being laid out? There's a, a great little story that is in, uh, Robert Coleman writes in his book called Written in Blood. And Robert Coleman tells a story of a little boy, maybe you've heard it, somewhat familiar story. A little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. And the doctor had explained that she had the same disease the boy had recovered from two years earlier. And her only chance for recovery was a transfusion from someone who had previously conquered the disease. And since the two children had the same rare blood type, the boy was the ideal donor. And so the doctor goes to the boy and says, would you give blood to your sister, Mary? And at first, Johnny hesitated. His lower lip started to tremble. But then he smiled and he said, sure, for my sister, I will do this. And so soon the two children were wheeled into the hospital room, Mary pale and thin and Johnny robust and healthy. Neither spoke but when their eyes met, Johnny grinned. And as the nurse inserted the needle into his arm, Johnny's smile faded. He watched the blood flow through the tube. With the ordeal almost over, his voice slightly shaky broke the silence. And he says, doctor, when do I die? Only then did the doctor realize why Johnny had hesitated, why his lip had trembled when he'd agreed to donate his blood. His thought of giving his blood to his sister meant giving up his life. And in that brief moment, he'd made his great decision. Johnny, fortunately, didn't have to die to save his sister. Each of us, however, has a condition more serious than Mary's, and it requires Jesus to give not just his blood, but his life. And since Jesus Christ had laid down his life through the shedding of his blood on the cross, there is hope of salvation for humanity. So in order for us to live, Christ had to die. Philip Ryken writes this about, about this idea. One of the most painful effects of sin is that it separates us from God, right? Last week we talked about sin separates us from God and God from us. Adam and Eve experienced this in the Garden of Eden. As soon as they sinned, there was a breach in their intimate friendship with God. They could no longer walk with him in the cool of the day. Indeed, they felt the overwhelming urge to run and hide. This is because they were alienated from God by their sin. In the end, they had to be banished from the garden all together. 
Our only hope is for an atonement to take place. Christ's death on the cross is referred to as the atonement. The word atonement itself kind of expresses this all-important truth about salvation, that through the blood of Jesus, sinners can be made at one with God. Now this phrase at one describes two people who have been brought into a state of unity after a period of disagreement. So though they had formerly been estranged and separated, they're now at one. And so from this phrase came several words. One is atonement, the restoration of a relationship, and the other is an atone maker, a person who made peace between these two parties. Biblically, atonement means the restoration of a relationship between God and sinners. Without atonement, there can be no relationship. So Jesus Christ then comes on the scene as the atone maker who provides the needed atonement through his death on the cross. And so this is what the writer of Hebrew is saying in these verses. When we are looking at atone maker, he uses the word to describe Christ as the atone maker, he uses the word mediator. And so I want us to look here where we're seeing all this. Hebrews 9, and I want you to jump down to verse 15 uh, with me. And we're gonna walk through just the first couple verses, and we won't read it all at once here, but look at verses 15 through 17. Therefore, after talking about all this, all of this with the, the tabernacle and now the blood of Christ, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed, the sins committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who has made, made it is alive. So this mediator, this idea of mediator is gonna be what we need to view the rest of these verses through. A mediator is one who comes between two parties, acts as kind of a link, literally means the go-between or the reconciler. And so Jesus, as our mediator, does several things on our behalf. In verses 15 through 17, we see that he, Jesus, received our sentence. Last week, we, we looked at how important it is to see that, we, that God is a holy God, that our imperfection found in sin separates us from God. We cannot have a relationship with him because of our sin. And don't think of sin just in our actions, but the fact that we are born into sin. We are sinners when we come into this world. And God's standard is perfection. His character is holy. And according to his standard of justice, God has said that the soul that sins must die. Therefore, the only way that a sinful person can ever come to God is to have the penalty of his sin paid. Sin carries the sentence of death. We see this all throughout scripture. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Peter 2.24, who himself bore our sins on his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. So the death of Christ satisfied the demands of a holy God. 
When Christ enters the scene, it wasn't as if he was looking at it and trying to find some other way. He acknowledged the holiness of God, acknowledged the penalty of sin, and was willing to pay the price. And so the death of Christ satisfied the demands of a holy God, yet it also opened a a way up for blessing. The point being made by the writer here in Hebrews in these few verses is that without a death, it is not possible to receive the benefits of the covenant, or as he uses the word, will. It's the same word there. Both will and covenant uh, are are used there, as well as testament. Uh, There's similarities in all those words. So the idea of a will, right, or, or, or a will is, has that basic meaning that corresponds with our present day will. So what he's describing here is like the benefits of that will, the benefits of that covenant only come about through death. And so building on verse 15, the writers of Hebrews is saying that God gave an eternal inheritance to Israel and to the rest of the world in the form of a new covenant, a new will, And as it is with any will, it was only a promissory note until the provider of the will died. A will is of no value to the beneficiaries until the death has occurred. Helps us in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, maybe we see it in a different light when we understand this will type language. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So because Jesus willingly laid down his life, we, we should think of all, all, what are those benefits, right? What are the blessings that are now ours as those who have placed our faith in him? There, there's the obvious, our forgiveness of sins. There's what we talked about last week, a clear and free conscience. The peace of God is ours. We have purpose and meaning as we now have a relationship with the creator of the universe. But also those benefits are, are include eternal life and heaven and being part of the new creation. But here's what's amazing. Not only did Jesus die as the provider of the will, but he also lives as the mediator of the will. He is active in the application of the covenant, the promises of it, and this is why the death and the resurrection of Jesus are so important. This is, Hebrews has set us up so well and as we've celebrated Christmas walking through Hebrews and now as we enter uh, the season of celebrating Easter, under, looking at the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that because the death and resurrection of Jesus are so important, without his death, the penalty was never paid and without his resurrection, we would have no hope that there is a go-between, a mediator between us and God. In order for reconciliation to be received, the sentence had to be carried out. The innocent took the place of the guilty and the sentence was carried out. So we see that that the sentence that was ours, he receives that instead. But then Jesus then removes our sin. Look at verses 18 through 22 with me. Therefore, not even the first covenant, the old covenant as we would refer to it, was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. 
And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so as our mediator, Jesus Christ received our sentence by dying in our place, but he also removes our sin by the shedding of his blood. The writer of Hebrews points out this scenario, this situation with Moses that occurs with the old covenant, when the old covenant began with with blood being shed. And if we can go back to Exodus 24, it gives us the full account of this whole scene. But what he's basically saying here is when I gave you those tablets, they had to be sprinkled with blood. When that tabernacle came into place, it had to be sprinkled with blood. All the elements that we talked about last week had to be sprinkled with blood. The people themselves sprinkled with blood. All the, everything around this, in order to be useful for worship, and in order to be useful to God, had to be sprinkled with blood. And the reason why is blood covered in order to set apart. The principle is that forgiveness demands blood. This was built right in even into the old covenant. In Leviticus 17, 11, it says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. The great amount of blood that we see throughout scripture is a reminder of the awful penalty of sin, the penalty of sin, which is death. And so why is there a focus on all the blood throughout scripture? Why do we mention it in the way we even worship? It's because it's to be a reminder of how disgusting and separating our sin is and that the only way that the penalty of that sin can be taken care of is through death. There should be some language here as you heard even with Paul uh, or with Moses here saying this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Hopefully reminds us of even as we take communion together, the reminder of that, right? When Jesus sat with his disciples in the upper room Matthew 26 records, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So the purpose of blood was to symbolize sacrifice for sin, which brought cleansing from sin. That idea of remission, that word that's used there is this freedom, this pardon, this forgiveness that's given there, which is what we see in verse 22 in Hebrews 9 that unless blood is shed, there can be no forgiveness or freedom from sin. Kent Hughes writes on this this set of verses here, and he says, the old covenant sailed on a sea of blood for two vast reasons. First, to emphasize the seriousness of sin, the Bible takes sin seriously more than any other religion. Sin alienates one from God. Sin is rooted in the hearts of humanity. Sin cannot be vindicated by any self-help program. Sin leads to death and it will not be denied. The second reason is the costliness of forgiveness. Death is the payment. It will either be Christ's life or ours. The author of Hebrews is taking the, the, 
Hebrew people, and he's walking them through. Listen, you were part of this old covenant. You walked through all these processes, but now in Christ is so much far, something far greater, one sacrifice for all. The blood of Jesus was shed so that our sins could be forgiven. Martin Luther has this to say about about the grace of God and this forgiveness that we have. He says that although out of pure grace God does not impute our sins to us, he nonetheless did not want to do this until complete and ample satisfaction of his law and his righteousness, righteousness had been made. Since this was impossible for us, God ordained for us in our place one who took upon himself all the punishment we deserve. He fulfilled the law for us. He averted the judgment of God from us and appeased God's wrath. Grace, therefore, costs us nothing, but it costs another much to get it for us. Grace was purchased with an incalculable, infinite treasure, the Son of God himself. And we're reminded of this throughout Scripture this idea of purchasing, Jesus purchasing through his blood. Acts 20, 28, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. 1 Corinthians 6, 20, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Here's what we wrestle with on this side of, of understanding what the author of Hebrews is saying. For the people in that time, it was beginning to grapple with this idea of something, they, the rituals they have been a part of for their, their whole lives. For us, we're, we're not, it's typically not rituals that we're moving away from. It's just understanding this understanding of grace, God pouring out his goodness on us, his forgiveness. Forgiveness is free, but as we talked about last week, it, that doesn't mean it was cheap. Our forgiveness cost the precious son of God his life. And yet there is the tendency for us to take such grace ever so lightly. But it wasn't just our problem. People in the early church struggled with this as well. In Romans 5, 20, have this idea here, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And I think understanding where some could take this and think, well then why do I care on how I live if grace is gonna abound, if God's still gonna forgive me, if God's still gonna look favorably at me, what does it matter what I do? Well, it matters, Romans 6, one through two. What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? We must be careful that we not become so familiar with grace that we abuse it, that we cheapen it. There was a cost for that. Recently, I've been reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and especially as it has related to just the events of our world. And if you know anything about him, walk through a very difficult season with the church in Germany as they walk through uh, what the Nazis were doing. And, he writes this about cheap grace. He says, cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Grace alone does everything they say, and so everything can remain as it was before. 
All for sin could not atone. Well, then let the Christian live like the rest of the world. Let him model himself on the world's standards in every sphere of life and not presumptuously aspire to live a different life under grace from his old life under sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Grace is this tension that we live in. The grace of God prompts me to take my sins seriously because it costs Jesus his life. Grace makes me understand the costliness of that sin. Just as it would have on the day of atonement as I watched those animals be slaughtered in front of me and their blood be spilt to make a covering for my sin. So grace acknowledges the payment that had to be made and that was ultimately made through Jesus Christ but it also acknowledges that my standing before God is because of the righteousness, the purity of Jesus, not because of what I, that I have done something so good to earn God's favor. All of grace rests on Jesus, not so that I can keep living like the world, because my acknowledgement through grace of my sin says there was a high cost for that grace to be applied to me. So I want to pursue righteousness. But I also understand that that grace applied to me through Christ means that when God looks at me, he sees me through the lens of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so there's freedom in that life. Let's jump into verses 23 through 26. Not only does Jesus remove our sin. There's more here that the author begins to build on, but that he represents the sinner. It says, verse 23 through 26, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with those rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have, have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So again, Jesus as mediator, right? Jesus received our sentence. He removes our sin. But notice what the Bible says. He also represents the sinner as our faithful high priest. Verse 24 says that he is in heaven now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. In this moment right now, verse 24, for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands. We talked about the tabernacle, that once a year, the high priest stepping in. So what the author of Hebrews is communicating to us is that our faith does not rest in an earthly priest who annually visits the Holy of Holies in a temporary sanctuary. Our faith is in Jesus Christ who has entered once for all into the eternal sanctuary, into the throne room of heaven. Our own efforts have not, nor will they ever satisfy the judgment of God for our sins. The old covenant, the tabernacle, was always pointing to Jesus. And now we sit on the other side and see the sacrifice of Jesus and know that everything rests upon him. John MacArthur, I love what he has to say here on this topic. He says, Jesus is the only one who satisfies the Father. And therefore, no one comes to him except through Jesus. I want you to listen carefully to what MacArthur says here. The idea that God accepts us as we are is utterly unbiblical. We come to Jesus just as we are, since there's nothing worthwhile we can bring. But he does not present us to the Father just as we are. We are totally unpresentable as we are. Otherwise, we could represent ourselves. And this is what the author of Hebrews is saying. You've had the nation of Israel that have watched year after year, the high priest walk in on their behalf, waiting and hoping everything was done right, that the high priest didn't drop dead, which would symbolize that their sins had not been covered. But when Jesus appears in the presence of God for us, he presents us in himself as he is. So now when we enter into the presence of God, the Father sees Jesus instead of us. He sees Christ's righteousness, his purity, not our unrighteousness. He sees Christ's sacrifice, not our sin. He sees Christ's payment for our sin, not our penalty for our sin. So Jesus came fully aware of the sinner's bankruptcy before God. He recognized that the wrath of God had to be satisfied if we were ever to enjoy fellowship with God. Therefore, he offered his own blood on our behalf. Verse 26, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
What's amazing is the tabernacle had been a time where it was just a covering, constant covering, just covering. Next year we gotta do the same, covered in blood, sins covered in blood. This language just permeates the whole Old Testament in the sacrificial system. But then we get here to verse 26 in Hebrews 9 and he uses this phrase, to put away, which literally means a cancellation. And it appears only twice in the New Testament and both occurrences are here in Hebrews. This is important. Unlike the the blood of the bulls and the goats, which were a covering of sin, we talked about how it would still leave guilt in our conscience. The blood of Jesus doesn't simply cover sin, it completely cancels it. Unlike those temporary sacrifices in the Old Testament, by offering the sacrifice of himself, Jesus has put away sin. And so now we have a representative, an advocate at the throne of grace. Verse 24, now to appear, he appears in the presence of God on our behalf. So here's what's amazing is that no matter what we're walking through in life, no matter what challenges we are facing, no no matter how often we try to guilt ourselves, know that there is someone seated in the throne room of heaven who is there for you, to represent you. I, I, I love how transparent Jerry was. Why? Because whenever we see the obstacles and challenges and the effects of sin in our lives, we tend to isolate that. We tend to say, well, there's no one else like that. Or I don't, I don't want to be embarrassed by what I'm walking through. I don't want to be embarrassed by the choices that I've made. What a horrible lie from Satan that isolation is the thing that needs to occur. When we have Jesus Christ who is sitting in the throne room of heaven advocating for us. This mediator, this Jesus who received our sentence, removes our sin, and now represents us in the throne room of heaven. But notice, the author here continues to build this hope, this, the betterness of Jesus verses 27 through 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So as our mediator, Jesus has promised that he's coming again in order for us to be where he is. So in these last couple of verses, the writer of Hebrews mentions two truths that we have to look at. First, notice the appointment every person has, verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. So here we see all, all men have to die. And our death is by divine appointment. It is the one appointment that everyone will keep. And after death comes judgment, which is also appointed by God. And since we are unable to atone, to make payment for our own sins, God's judgment demands that we pay or have a substitute pay for us. 
Because Jesus took our sins upon himself, he took our judgment upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And that last phrase, in him, in Jesus. Not because of me, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. He died the one death that judgment demanded. Second, notice the appearing every man must be aware of. Verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Verses 24 through 28, the word appear is used three times and each of which illustrate a truth of how Christ is working on our behalf, how he is appearing or has appeared on our behalf. Verse 26, he's appeared to put away sin by dying on the cross. And so he's dealt with sin's penalty. Verse 24 is where we see this word again. He's appearing now in heaven before the throne for us. He has dealt with sin's power. And in verse 28, he will appear to take us home to be with him. He will deal with sin's presence that we feel and see every single day. And yet there is a day coming when all that is removed and only his righteousness reigns. Jesus Christ has appeared for me by dying on the cross in my place. Jesus Christ is appearing for me before the throne of grace as my advocate. And Jesus Christ will one day appear for me to receive me unto himself that where he is, there I may be also. In the Old Testament, when we talked about the sanctuary and that day of atonement, the people would always wait with great anticipation on the day of atonement for the high priest to come out of the Holy of Holies if he had done anything wrong, if he failed to follow any of God's specific instructions, he would die on the spot. The moment he peeled back that veil and stepped in, he would have died in that place. So there was always a sigh of relief. In fact, there's recorded celebrations that would occur when he would reappear out of that Holy of Holies. When the high priest walked out of the old sanctuary, the people knew that his sacrifice had been accepted and he had done everything right on their behalf. This is what the writer of Hebrews is alluding to in verse 28. If those under the old covenant were so eager to see their earthly high priest emerge from that holy of holies, how much more should believers under the new covenant look for the great high priest Jesus to emerge from the holiest of holies in heaven? One commentary puts it this way, Calvary was the focal point of two eternities. All the ages prior looked forward to it and all the ages since looked back to it. There, reared against the world's skyline at the center of all the ages is the cross of Christ with its message of eternal significance. Man dies only once and then faces the judgment. Christ can die only once and only once must he bear sin's penalty. And so when Jesus appears again, it won't be to deal with sin. He's done that. It will be to deliver the saints, those 
who have placed their faith in Jesus. He'll be coming for his church. So as we walk through this, what the author of Hebrews is trying to help the people understand is it has always been true that this covenant, this promise, this will that has been set forth since the day of Moses has required and demanded death, blood to be spilt. We see that forgiveness demands ultimately blood to be shed. And judgment demands a substitute. And so as our mediator, Jesus has fulfilled all the necessary demands on our behalf. So when we sing a song and ask the question, is he worthy? Here's why he is worthy. He received our sentence. He removed our sin. He represents us. And he returns for us. These Hebrews were faced with a choice. Would they continue to live for the earthly and the temporary? Or would they choose to live for the heavenly and the eternal? And such is the same choice that we must make centuries later. One, will we choose to follow Christ? Will we acknowledge our sin and the penalty of that sin? Would we acknowledge that there's nothing I can do in and of myself to earn that forgiveness from a holy God? but that through Christ, he's taken care of that. He's paid the price. And for some of you, that's, that's the question you need to wrestle with. Am I willing to turn from my sin and accept the payment that Christ made for me and all the benefits that follow? For those of us that have placed our faith in Christ, are we living a life that one, honors the sacrifice Christ made for us? The grace that we have, the goodness of God that we receive was not cheap. So when we look at our lives, do we acknowledge the role God's word and his instruction should play in our lives? That we take sin seriously. That we live in the way he designed us to live. That there is no such thing as cheap grace, but it was costly Do we acknowledge our desperate everyday need for Jesus? We don't boast in our goodness. Paul writes, he gives us in a variety of places, he gives us a list. So here's, you wanna know what good I've done? Here's how good I've been. It's all worthless. Apart from knowing who Jesus is and what he has done for me. So those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, are we living a life that acknowledges our desperate everyday need for Jesus, that we're not about self-promotion or boasting? And then thirdly, if we've placed our faith in Christ, are we living a life that shares this hope with the sphere of influence that God has placed us in? If we really believe what Jesus has done, we really believe the rescue that he provides, we really believe in the penalty of sin, then why would we not in any way possible communicate this through our lives and through our words, the hope of Jesus Christ? 
Why would we not come to him with whatever hurt, whatever illness, whatever thing we might be battling and say, Jesus is far greater? Why would we not take opportunity to reach the needs of others, to be a means of pointing them to the fact that those things that we provide aren't the hope in and of themselves. We do these things to point to the one who's given us all the hope the world needs, which is the forgiveness of their sins, a unified relationship that was only experienced with Adam and Eve for a short time before sin broke and severed that relationship. And now through Jesus, we can enjoy that relationship. This is the hope of Jesus. The Jesus who received our sentence, removes our sin, represents us in the throne room of heaven right now, and is one day returning, not to pay for the sins that's been done, but to rescue us and unite us with him to place us in a new creation where sin is no more. This is the hope that we are called upon to live in and share with the world around us. May the Lord help us to live in light of that and be a light to a world that desperately needs that Savior, which is Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for just how you push us face to face with the reality of the ugliness of sin and, and our own desperation to not be able to get ourselves out of it. Lord, help us in this moment for those that maybe have not taken that first step of acknowledging their sin and placing their faith on you. I pray that the gospel message of Jesus Christ would be clear this morning, that they would place their faith in you, that they would be united into your family, that they would enjoy these benefits that we've talked about. For those of us that have a relationship with you, would you just light a, a fire anew within us to, to, to share with others, to reach others, not, not with all the physical blessings that can happen, but the reality that our hope is in the fact that Jesus, your son, died for our sins. That that penalty does not have to be faced on our own, but can be faced because of what Christ has already done for us. Lord, help us to be bold in that witness and look for ways. We know you'll give them to us. Lord, help us to be your people in this world, being the light in this world. We love you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.